millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Welcome to the Country Life Summer Series. I'm Duncan Smith. We're looking back at some of the stories we brought you in 2023. And today, we meet a Southland cow whisperer and an olive grower in Northland. But first, Sally rounds out hunting for a good cause. Be warned, there are some squeamish bits. We're off now to one of Tairawhiti's big sheep and beef properties, Pukitoru Station, two and a half hours' drive from Gisborne on the edge of the Rokumara Range. It's the crack of dawn just after the roar, and the mist is cloaking the valley below. So we're actually following a game trail, uh, a deer trail. Lisa Daunton and Matt Greenland are in a forest with their dogs on the edge of a paddock, stalking deer. Looks like something's walked through here recently, eh? Get up. So we're about a third of the way down to the trees now. Yeah, don't rush because it's quite nice for the sun to hit that face. Alright, we'll all sit up for a bit. Matt. <coughs> Matt. Have a cappuccino. That's Lisa's husband Rob on the right. other end of the radio. They come to Pukitoro every five weeks to hunt deer for venison for food banks in the region. We shoot anything from four to 12 deer, and then each deer is worth about, in kilo weight, it's about 30 kilos of meat, and so we calculate that's probably about 350 families will get a kilo of fresh venison meat through the food banks each five weeks. It's a great feeling because you know that you're helping people. Rob is on a far-off hill with a thermal device, which makes it easier to spot yeah, the deer. OK, we're just about up at the top corner. We'll sit there for a bit. Oh, gee. Well, it's, it's there over that ridge, this bottom one. If they're down there... Yeah. They won't see us. So we jump the fence? Probably. Go down. I mean, we should probably pop up here maybe and just look. Yeah. Make sure that there's nothing There's the there. thrill of the hunt. There always is, because you've got to... You've got to we, we get up on a hill and we'll be, we'll be glassing, and we're looking, we'll find something. But then we discuss amongst each other and how we're going to get that animal. And so we, OK, we're going to shoot it there, there's a track there, we're going to have to carry it there. And then once, it's, once the bullet's out of the gun, the work begins because you've then got to walk down, and as you've experienced today, some of, some of it can be some big walks. You've got to get to the animal. Gutting the animal is really physical. And then you've got to get that animal onto a buggy, and then get that buggy back to a chiller. 
and then we're two and a half hours away from Gisborne, so then that animal's got to travel two and a half hours to our chiller. We hang it for a week, and then I come along, and I will skin it and bone it. Then it goes to the butcher, and they vac pack it, one kilo packets, and that goes out to families. So when I'm sitting on a hill, and I'm looking at a deer, I'm not looking at it a deer, I'm looking at it food bags for people. And, and that's what drives me, is knowing that there's families out there that are going to benefit from us getting out here on the hill. And that's got to be pretty cool. I can't see anything below us. Can't see anything. What are those turkeys doing? Just walking down the fence line. <sighs> We've got half a dozen turkeys just walking the fence line about 100 metres ahead of us. Do you think we should come out into the paddock and drop down? I think. No, I'd stick to the tree edge. Um, when you get down further, I might get you to get into the trees. And then it'll be probably a 250 metre shot across to where those four are. Okay. Come here. Right, leave it. Matt's Visla Huntaway has picked up the scent, but she's still got a bit to learn. It's a good run for the dogs. For the hunters, there's the fresh air, spectacular scenery, and as well as the chase, a worthy project. I'm a city boy originally, lived in Auckland most of my life, but um, never liked the city. Kind of always wanted to leave, and um, since I've lived here in Gisborne, I've um, kind of find my, found my passion for it. Should we just trot off down here? I hunted once when I was about eight or nine in Australia with my old man and got a kind of a taste of it over there, hunting kangaroos and wallabies. I love stalking the animals and the challenge of that, you know, to getting in on the animals without them seeing you. I find that it's really rewarding to be able to give back and it's doing something I love in hunting, so it's kind of a win-win for me. Matt and Lisa work out how they're going to keep moving without spooking the turkeys and alerting the deer. You've got to think of everything. Yeah, turkeys, okay. sheep, cows, horses. They're still in there. But let's head indoors now. It's dinner time in the old Shearer's quarters at Pukitoro. One of the owners of the station, Lee McNeil, is at the big table in front of the fire. There are a lot of deer on Pukitoro and they, you know, they sort of double in numbers every three years, I think I've been told. And so they just really get out of control. And um, when Tennant, a couple of years ago, two or three years, three years ago, probably said to me that he wanted to get the choppers in to cull some of the deer, I said, well, hang on a minute, let's... Um, just let me bring Rob and Lisa and see where they're at. They're really um, amazing at working hard to give to other people. They're making a dent in the numbers, but not a huge dent, really, but they certainly, it's just brilliant that they're going to be. Not good to have deer on the farm when no. you're trying to graze sheep and beef. No, just far too many, far too many, and you'd, you know, they, they are really good at just jumping into all the paddocks with the best grass. And how much grass do they eat? Heaps. <laughs> Far more than, than, than they need to. <laughs> also here is Tui Keenan, one of Lisa and Rob's partners in the meat harvesting project. 
It's all part of the philanthropic side of the Keenans and the Dauntons, Kaifakango clothing brand for hunters. Ko Tui Keenan Ahau, ko Hikurangi Toku Maunga, and it's really neat that I speak to you with my maunga just over there, so it's so kia ora to you. Tui used to be in the police force in Gisborne and now works as a school counsellor. She not only helps distribute the meat, but passes on her hunting skills to the kids. I get the cool job of working with family uh, at a grassroots level and I get to see where the need is. And yes, everything times 100, what is on the news, the, the need is definitely there and at our doorstep, and so are the deer at our doorstep. So it's a great opportunity to connect our families with this meat. So has the need got worse since the cyclone? Initially, after the cyclone, communities were well supported with government and local funding and extra food going out or support packages going out. But now, since that is winding up, the need's back and is... Um, worse than pre-cyclone. What sort of stories are you hearing? Uh, I work in a local school, so I see uh, kids coming to school hungry, or um, I would work with a few families, and um, they just can't make their money cover all of their bills. They're stretching as, as far as possible, Working with um, social service agencies throughout Tairawhiti, it's always really hard to get in the door, especially when you're rocking on up in a government-looking car with a lanyard around your neck. That's an instant barrier. But what I find, um, the meat, the organic meat that costs so much if you were to buy it, and when you turn up with that, it's like all the barriers are down. We get to see the meat going to where it's needed. For example, the elderly who are too shy to ask for help or who won't ask for help, they'll just make do with what they got. So it's really rewarding to give meat to them as well. It's like a, an entry ticket into helping these families with their whole life. And you're also passing on some of the hunting knowledge to the children that you work with at the school. Yes, absolutely. And it's really neat to hear from parents how their children are keen to come to school, especially on a Monday when it's meat day, when they have to process the meat. And we have an internal lunch model at school. And the, because the meat is MPI certified, it can go into the school lunches. So when it's venison day, either burgers or sausages or mints, the kids get excited and they often fight over who processed the venison for the lunch that day. And There's that real ownership. They've participated in, in um, the gathering process of the meat, the processing process, and now they're eating it with their not, mates. And they're not <laughs> squeamish about it at all as they go about cutting up the meat? Initially they were. Um, they'd have deer hanging in the trees at school and I'd joke with them, oh, this is in your school lunch today. They'll be like, oh, gross. But now it's totally normal and there's so many students that want to come and help. Um, they can't all help and they often are asking me, when's the next year coming to school? When is it my turn? And it's just totally normal now, whereas before, at the start the children were quite urbanised and had never seen anything like it before, but now it's just totally normal to see a deer in the tree and to eat venison for lunch that week. Dead. Dead. 
We're back Dang. on a shaded ridge in the early morning. Bring your little hairy legs back here. A couple of deer are grazing in the paddock below. Oh, yeah, I can see the deer. Come here, Sam. 16-year-old Sam Fisher also has his rifle at the ready. Go straight through this gap in front of me. Get down, get down. Look straight through the gap of these two trees. There's one there and there's one up higher. But we're going to have to hurry up. Yeah. Otherwise we're going to lose yeah, them. Just going for the two stags at the bottom. That top one's down. Yeah. Oh, let's go. Hold on. Have we lost it? All the rest, obviously. We know we've definitely got one. Come here. All right, well, we'll just come down and park on a somewhere and make a plan. Is that mate? Come here. Yeah, he's down. No sign of the other one. It's, it's important from the minute you shoot the animal to look after it. It's not just respecting the animal, it's thinking about the end product. So you, you've got to just be so respectful of it, mindful of it, how you carry it out. You know, you don't drag it through cow pats or whatever, because what would that be, Sam? That would be a 60 kilo animal. Oh, well over. Yeah, so we could be looking at 30 kilos of meat. That's 30 families will get get a feed from this one shot. And um, to us, that's, that's, that's the end game, and that's so exciting. I get excited when I see an animal down, and I'm already planning where's the next one going to be. You don't feel sorry for the animal? No, because, no, we don't. And a lot of people don't like what we do. We're shooting Bambi, and like Lee last night, she, she loves what we do, but she couldn't ever pull the trigger. Um, we see these as um, humane kills, and they're going to get 10 if we don't do this right now, or the farmer comes in and they do a big clean-up with helicopters. So um, they're a pest. And they're a, they're a wonderful organic high in iron um, source of meat. So no, no, we don't. I, I don't get emotional at all actually about about shooting them. But in saying that, I watched a I've never ever seen before in my life. But I watched a a mum and a fawn feeding, and you don't see that in the wild. And that was beautiful. That was just that was just like a wow moment. And you do you just you think wow that's so that's so beautiful. So you do have your moments. You know we're not hard asses. We all we we are respectful and we love these animals. And they're just graceful. Deer are the dolphins of the land. You know, dolphins are so graceful. And, and I, I just think they're a beautiful animal. And we really respect and appreciate that we can fill families' food banks. The team reach the downed animal and Sam starts gutting to make it lighter to carry out. Now, if you're squeamish, you might want to jump forward here or turn the sound down. As you can see, it's quite a young stag. Yeah, it's kind of nets are quite high above the skull there. Still got its baby teeth there, and so it's real young. Once a stag gets older, that that will wear down right down to sort of its gum. First to come off are the antlers. Look at that. That is, you know, that is a beautiful knife handle. 
And so the boys know that, um, so that's my tax. They don't get to mount these heads. I, I, I get all the antlers because I upcycle your old grandmother's bone handle butcher uh, carving knives and I, I put beautiful antler handles on them. And what do you do with them? Sell them at markets. And the money we make from that, because we've worked in the islands off and on, that money goes to helping families in the islands. In the same breath, I only like this size. So if they're bigger, we are collecting them and we'll sell them. They get $25 a kilo. And we, we need to start um, gathering funds for bullets because we've been doing this for two and a half years. And just for ammunition, for um, fuel and that sort of stuff, we love doing this. But we've got a student, we've got a dad of two and a half kids, and we've got, you know, he's on a single income. And um, and we need to look after, you know, these bullets. For 20 bullets, Sam, how much? You're talking 120 bucks normally, eh? Yeah, yeah. And some. Yeah. So, Sam, while other kids are at home behind the computer, you're out here slitting deer's throats. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Yeah. How did you get into it? Oh, um, just like pig hunting on the farm. That's all Dad sort of did for pest control and then thought I'd shoot a deer one day. And then I did. I liked it. And, yeah, kept on shooting heaps. Yeah. What so. do you like about this particular project? Oh, it's just good because you can... It's just feeding hungry people with stuff that's on the farm making your stock hungry so you can... Make sense. Yeah, yeah. Win-win. Here it comes. Oh, I don't think I've ever got this close to a, a deer being shot and then split open. Yeah. Guts coming out. So then all that's attached to the esophagus is the lungs and the heart and all that stuff up the top. That important stuff anyway. What do you call it? Vital organs. The best time to get it if you're after a stag is prior to the raw, so <clears throat> in sort of March, um, before the mating season, and they they're really fat then, and then they they don't really eat a lot during the season when they're mating, and then they they lose a lot of condition, and then they feed hard before winter comes, and so this would have been quite a bit heavier before the, the raw. Um, so they're not as heavy as what they they can be, but you know they're still a pest on the farm. So they want them off because every bit of grass these things eat is not available for the cows and the sheep. So they've already the helicopter took 340 deer off here um, in the last three or four months um, off this property, and we've taken 140 in the last 18 months. So it's a lot of deer that have been consuming a lot of grass that the um, the cows and sheep haven't been had available to them. Many more out there, do you think? Oh yeah, plenty. Yeah, the numbers are way down on what they used to be though. Yeah. What are you going to do with those guts now they've all come out? They stay here. Sometimes we'll take the heart, because the heart's really good eating, usually on, on a hind, so a female deer, or a young deer. The heart's really nice. The stag can be quite gamey, so it's not as nice. So we won't take his heart. <coughs> and that essentially comes a part of the ecosystem, I guess. Get eaten by something else. Right there, Sammy. 
Sam turns the legs into straps and heaves the headless carcass onto his back. Not too bad. For the trudge over a farm track to the waiting vehicle and the chiller. Now I'm thinking, OK, we've got this one down. Where else can we go? Never satisfied. Always wanted to know where there's more. We've got a whole day ahead of us. There's got to be more. I like to go home with a dozen. It's really good. We've only done that a couple of times. In my head, it's, it's feeding families. It's, I mean, I love this. I love hunting. I love hanging out with these guys. But I just constantly think of the families we're going to be helping. Lisa Daunton, after another successful hunt at Pukitoro Station in Tairawhiti. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. Next, we're meeting Lulu the Cow Whisperer, a.k.a. Laura Murdoch. She was born a townie, but has a knack of bonding with cows. Back in March, Cosmo Kentish Barnes met up with Laura on a dairy farm near Invercargill. We're at Mokotoa, Remu area of Southland. This uh, property here is 89 hectare property, but only about 83 of it's effective, and we actually only use maybe about 80 of it as uh, a milking platform for 250 max cows. And you've just finished milking? Yes, yes, yep, just finished milking. Pretty much cleaned up the shed, still got a bit of yard to go, but that's all good. Yes, and what's that sound we can hear in the background? Oh, that's just the tanker whirling away. The vet, sorry, tanker will be coming later on today to pick that up. Hopefully got about 9,000 litres of milk in there at the moment. And still doing about 1.8 milk solids cow, so we store it around twice a day and we'll remain that way hopefully till right through the end of the season just before drying off unless the weather changes something there for us. Yes. Now do you do all the milking yourself? Yes, so I'm predominantly like the milker here and then uh, we work on a roster like I'm 11 on, 3 off so on my days off the farm owner actually comes into my position to uh, relief milk for me and then I pretty much yeah, do everything with the shed and the cows and uh, effluent spreader and then he's predominantly with more the land so he organises for like fertilisers and spreading urea and like contractor stuff or contractors like uh, if we're locking out a couple paddocks for baleage and that type of thing um, he organises all of that. So I guess a lot of the time you're just here on your own? Yes, yes. So do you like that? I do, actually. I like look, not having to worry about staff. It was one of the <laughs> highlights of coming here, to be fair. And yeah, it was very handy over COVID time that I didn't have to worry about anybody. Um, yeah, so no, I actually just enjoyed us put my radio on while milking and kind of we sing and dance and cows will look at me strange and, and then the odd one will stop for a pet and yeah it's it's very fun. Well shall we um, head out onto the farm and meet some of your beloved cows? Yes, looking forward to it. Don't have that far to go. <laughs> now we're walking through the yard and you've got a few cows lingering in a paddock nearby. That one's uh, just like, I've got some carryover cows. What is a carryover cow? So a carryover cow is when last season, after we'd done 
AB time and had bulls out, that cow was actually still empty, not in calf, but uh, we kept her, as, and that's why they call it a carryover, because you're carrying it over one season where it's not actually going to be milked and hope that it gets in calf during that season yeah. and then it'll be there yeah. the season after. So they're cows you want to hold on to because they're good milk producers? Yes, or best friends. Or best friends the 30, in your case. The 32, <laughs> out, 32 out there, it's the, the second one in with the white spot on the head is looking over here. So that's boss's favourite cow. The one just behind her, number one, she's got that number. She's a daughter of Dottie, who's another friend cow we'll be able to maybe meet if she comes over in the paddock. Like It's a certain breed line that the boss quite likes. In mm. Yeah, so... It looks like there's a bit of speckled park in, in one yeah, of them. Yeah, that's the beef. That's their beef calf we kept from last year. That next year will be lunch. Oh, well, let's jump on the, the quad bike. Yep and meet the rest of the herd. We are in the paddock now with most of your your milking cows. This is Jelly Bean. She's only a heifer. So um, one eight two that are called Big Filly because she actually let you sit on her back like a horse. She's very very friendly. You haven't always been a farmer, have you? you? You you switched careers. Yes, so this is actually only my sixth season of gone dairy farming. Uh, before that, I was actually an accountant for uh, over ten years. Um, worked up from administration roles prior to that. So originally wanted to go dairy farming I'd first seen a shed operating when I was 17 and then um, I was told I had carpal tunnel because I had extreme wrist pain and problems ended up at the hospital for it and then I got an operation to fix that and then I was like oh sweet I'll just go do cows now so here's Munchkin now I knew it wouldn't be long till she goes hello Munchkin yeah, so she likes hello oh she's, she's giving not, me a good she's step she's not shy yeah it's a microphone you can't do that when you switched careers did you decide to do some study so you could work your way up the dairy yeah, ladder a bit quicker because I knew from um, accounting I'd worked on the job and as well like I never went to uni did a degree like I've just went straight into work from school and then I'd done papers while I was working. While yeah, and so I knew from that that until I get actual paper full courses done, um, it's very hard to uh, be able to be marketable in the workplace compared to competition yeah. of other people. So to be, I always strive to be the best I can be. To I'd try to upskill as much as I could. So I knew I was going to have the same thing in the dairy industry or risk being placed, having to settle for a wrong job. 
How long have you been working on, on this farm here? Yes. Yeah, so and how did you get the job? I came here, I started in July 2019. Um, yeah, so that reverse advertising, I'd put a post up saying what I wanted. Like, I want a small herd, I want to work for an owner, not like have middlemen management. Then people like messaged on my post like I've got this stuff or could pair me or what about this or here and and then Chris's one I just had a gut feel and it stood out and I didn't even really look at anyone else you just knew this was the right place it was the only interview that I come talk to someone about and I'd said to him because he's like I go away and think about it whatever and I was like nah like I'm keen like I'm I'm in like yeah like it just every all the things my kind of non-negotiable things were all ticked off in this position it's good to go into a job knowing exactly what you want Yes. It's clear. Yep, no, it was, because it's all good and well. Obviously, um, lots more cows means potentially lots more friends or whatnot, but I oh, know I just find from an animal welfare point of view, I like a small herd where I can put more time into certain animals. You know, they're not just um, like a milk machine and a number, and they're actually your friend and... Um, they look forward to seeing you each day and obviously trying to wash me and <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the guys is licking you and sniffing you and uh, obviously enjoying like a nice scratch yes yeah, so like who is this kind this of here? one I call big fluffy ears because she's got those she things. has you have quite a, a hands-on manual approach here don't you you're not hugely into high-tech computers and no, all, all, the, all the modern a, gadgetry. don't even have a computer at my shed. Like, I don't even have, like, the Minder app on my phone. I do it all up here. Like, I know who's been in for feet and mastitis and whatnot, and if I don't necessarily remember exact date, I know where to go look, find it, like, real easy, because mm-hmm. I know just the way I note everything in my dairy diary, I can, you know pull out any kind of record anyway so it's um yeah yeah. old school yeah no it is and last year you were crowned the southland otago dairy manager of the year yes congratulations yeah thank you no it was very very exciting um i had entered the new zealand dairy awards just to kind of prove to myself or see get an unbiased feedback where I was at with what I thought I knew and what I might need to learn or work on and um yeah smashed it. What um (laughs) practices have you put in place here on this farm that made the judges uh, prick up their ears? So livestock was obviously clearly one of them and um personal planning and financial management so that kind of made sense having a bit of a background in that yeah <laughs> and I'd um I'd already done cash flows and budgets and you know forecasted results for end of year I already had all of that there and I was able to use all of that and then also I guess we had that change with the mating plan too to try and reduce their bobby cuffs with 50%. So, What about yeah. um, environmental practices? Did they ask you about that? Uh, yes, and I think um, they quite like the idea that my boss is very like land 
land driven and um, we've got a couple of like that's a woodlot over there and there's another one just behind his yeah. house and there's native trees growing in there and one of his things he would like to do on this farm and we've already leveled out area for it is build like a wee nursery where he can get the wee seedlings like the wee little plants from out in there and actually grow them a bit bigger and use them to plant Gosh, they all want to pat, don't they? Yes. You're being totally sure. surrounded. In between managing the farm here, you also do a bit of social media stuff, and your Facebook name is Lulu the Cow Whisperer. Yes. I seem to get a nickname on dairy farms as Lulu, and then because this stuff happens with me and cows wherever I go, <laughs> then they start joking on the cow whisperer. So then it's just Lulu Cow Whisperer was just a like a tag name there, and um, because I get to see so much cool stuff, and like I've obviously very friendly cows, I just thought, oh, if I can show other people how cool it is because a lot of people have never been on a farm even though you live in Southland you drive past them all the time but to actually have stepped foot in a paddock or in a shed you know most people don't really get to do that and so you what post lots of photos and yeah and films, just try and videos. showcase like my fun I like looking at it so then I think oh someone else surely might too and then yeah, sure enough, there's quite a few hundreds of people that actually want to watch and like the videos. Do you post your videos onto TikTok? Yes, I've had a couple just recently. Like One's got a, about 40,000 views on it, and the Gosh. other one's got about oh, late 20s and a few thousand likes. And... Oh, I'm being <laughs> licked by, by, by a cow, and she's got a very raspy tongue. Oh, it's like sandpaper. A bit flowy. You. What are your goals for the future? So, like, I'm single with no children. It's not really, at this point in my life, a huge drive to be broke my whole life and die rich just trying to get a farm, <laughs> like, as such. But I'd quite happily use someone else's. Um, I would love some of my own cows, so then I, I get the ultimate say over them yep. yeah she's called dancing queen so when you um go to cup her she actually like always paces like this and <laughs> her rear end reminds me of um in a pack of cards the queen because one half of her is white and the other half's black Laura Murdoch with Cosmo and a herd of friendly dairy cows in Mokotua in Southland. To the far north now, where Leah Tebbett is taking you to meet retired doctor-turned-olive-grower Peter Crowlinston. I'm greeted by two lovely border collies when I arrive at Peter Crowlinston's Pukiri Olive Grove, just outside of Kirikiri. It's an overcast day, so we waste no time being outside while it's still dry. Going into the olive grove, so it's very small. We've only got about 180 trees. So we planted the trees on the right. We planted in um, 2011. And the ones on the left, uh, this was all macadamia nut trees. So I eventually got rid of all of them and planted these olive trees here 
um, in 2015, so they're younger, and they're not doing as well. They're not that vigorous. And I think the macadamia nut trees sucked all the nutrients out of the soil. The macadamia roots, they keep shooting up even eight, nine years later, we still get new macadamias shooting up through the ground that I have to cut out. No. So the roots are still alive and I think still sapping the nutrients from the soil. So these trees are not as vigorous as they should be. But I keep working on the soil. I think we'll get there eventually. But um, the first one there is, is looking, you can see the difference. The foliage is a little bit denser. There's the odd one that's, that's doing better. Uh, at the far end here, you can see that tree there in the corner is also doing better. So the corner's the place to be. I think there's less <laughs> macadamia nut roots there. <laughs> yeah. Right, that makes sense. But I've had the soil tested and so on for all the trace minerals and as well soil biology, so bacterial fungal activity and all of that. And based on all of those results, we, we work with it with supplements and foliar sprays. We'll get there. It's just being a little bit tedious. I haven't done it for about three years now, but going back, we had what was called the um, soil biology assays done. They look at bacterial activity in the soil, fungal activity in the soil, mycorrhizal fungal activity, bacterial fungal ratios, because bacterial fungal ratios are, are quite different if you're growing tomatoes or growing olive trees. And so for, for fruit trees, the ratio should be predominantly in the fungal favor, whereas for vegetables and stuff, it's more in bacterial favor. So we look at all that, and then we, um, based on the reports, get supplements, calcium, magnesium, silica, iron, zinc. We add it into the soil, just with top dressing. So, yeah, the, the, the grove goes up the slope towards where you came down the hill, and then this way. Yeah, it's a lot. Where we just were, I didn't have enough long eyesight to realize how deep this part actually goes. <laughs> As I said, we've got 180 trees. We've never done well here so far. We've never had a, a great crop. So every year I keep hoping that next year is going to be our first really good crop, but so far it hasn't happened. It's been a, been a struggle. I take care of another grove uh, about 20 minutes from here in Opito Bay. And those trees are about 25 years old now. There's a very strong biannual tendency with the olive trees. One year, a very good crop. The next year, a very poor crop. Uh, for example, last year in the other grove I take care of, we got about 450 kilograms of olives, and the year before, about 2,600 kilograms. Holy. Yeah, six Holy. times as much. So it's like that. But we've never picked more than 500 kg here, and we really should be getting... 2,500 kg in a good year, 3,000 kg. It's, it's kind of south-facing, and so it, they might not be getting as much sunlight as they would like. But then it's the winterless north too, right? <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> so not, they say. But it's not the rainless north. <laughs> We've been getting a lot of rain. Yeah. Uh, and all the trees, of course, are a Mediterranean climate tree, so they, they can adjust to a degree to changing environmental circumstances but uh, we're very borderline up here I think for olive trees in northern New Zealand with the amount of rain and obviously the climate's changing and we're getting more rain so that's not particularly helpful but we'll see we'll keep boxing on and see what happens. So what promoted you to get into this in the first place? 
Yeah, I often ask myself that question <laughs> 25 years later. I used to go to a, a country called Malta in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. um, I first visited there in 1989 when I was living in Hong Kong. Uh, I, was, I was previously a, a medical doctor and I was going to a conference in The Hague. There's the main islands called Malta, and then there's a sister island that's called Gozo, G-O-Z-O, which is only about 9 by 14K, very small, with about 30,000 people. Anyways, I ended up buying a place there years ago. It was a 500-year-old collapsed farmhouse and started renovating it and then started going to Malta every year and um, discovered the olive trees. Many, many years ago, the, the Phoenicians brought olive trees to the island of Malta and Gozo, as they did around the whole of the Med, around 2500 BC, and started planting olive trees. In the early years, AD, Malta was covered in olive trees. And then around 1000 AD, the, another Arab group invaded Malta and the island of Gozo and destroyed a lot of the olive trees and all the olive presses to uh, control and ruin the economy. And so the number of olive trees was really decimated. And then the British discovered the island of Gozo and Malta, and they basically finished off what remaining olive trees there were to plant cotton. So there weren't many olive trees, but there were still some small groves and patches. I started reading about the olive tree and got totally taken with the history of it going back. To, we first started using olives to feed ourselves probably about 7,000 BC, over 9,000 years ago, and, and that's documented from carbon dating of, of seeds and pits in Palestine, Israel, and Jordan with carbon dating. So it's a, it's a fascinating tree. It's been around a long time. It's the very first tree that we actually harvested a fruit from. Is it really? was the olive tree. Yep. The second was the fig tree, and the third was the pomegranate. So those were the first three fruit that uh, us humans started consuming. So it's got a, an incredibly long history. And then I, start, I just started reading more and more about it and really fell in love with the olive tree, unfortunately. And um, so it's become a, a passion and a hobby and a, a wonderful pursuit. It leads all over the place to people you meet and horticulture, agriculture, soil science, and all of those fascinating parameters. So uh, that's how I got into it. I started planting olive trees on the island of Gozo. If you would have Googled the island of Gozo, in the early 2000s, there was a green patch, one green patch on the island, and that was our olive grove. I think we had the largest grove on the island with 100 trees. But uh, one thing led to another, and we, we had ended up leaving Gozo. And um, I had lived in New Zealand back in the 80s and then left New Zealand. I had lived in Russell from 82 to 86, and so this was the area of New Zealand I was familiar with. And so we moved back here in 2011 and planted olive trees again. So I'm guessing when yeah. you were looking through the real estate options, a bit of area to plant some trees was top of the list. Yeah, so we wanted to have a, you know, a minimum of five acres and, if possible, a source of water. So this place has six and a half acres, and we, we have a river uh, that emanates out of the Pukati Forest down at the bottom called the Kerry Kerry River, which goes into the Pacific Ocean at the Stone Store. And so we got a source of water. So it's a very small grove. It's only, a, as I said, 180 trees. It doesn't feel small, though, but maybe to you. When you're having to take care seen. of it and prune the trees, it doesn't feel small. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's like your own little slice of Malta or, or Gozo in, <laughs> in New Zealand.
Peter takes me into the shed to show the utensils he uses to harvest. It's like a large comb with vibrating prongs which work to rattle the olives off the branch. He says other growers might use what's known as a shaker that wraps around the base of the tree, shaking the mature fruit until it falls off. But Peter says he will never use it, as he isn't after mature fruit. As the olives mature on the trees, the, the oil content goes up. So if you harvest it a little bit later, you get more oil. But the chemicals in olive oil that have significant health benefits are called polyphenols. Mm -hmm. And as the olives mature, the polyphenol levels go down. So if you wait, you get more oil, but less healthy oil. And what I'm trying to do is make the healthiest oil possible. <laughs> and so I harvest very early in an attempt to get higher polyphenol levels. Peter tells me there are well over 20 in the oil. However, the health benefits become significant once those polyphenol levels are over 250 milligrams a litre. Peter's oil is sitting between 400 and 500 milligrams. So, yeah, this is our press house, olive shed. It's a beautiful shed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is where we, we press the olives. Uh, to make olive oil with a high polyphenol content, one of the things you try to do is, as I mentioned, harvest it as early as feasible. And then another thing is to press the olives as quickly as possible after they're off the trees because the nanosecond the olives are off the olive trees, they start oxidizing. And the polyphenols are, one of their properties are antioxidants. And so when oxidation starts, the polyphenols in the oil are activated to counter oxidation, so they get used. And so if you wait 24, 36 hours until you press them after harvesting them already, the polyphenol levels will be going down a little bit. This is our press, so I try to get them in here within three or four hours of them coming off the tree and, and press them. Unfortunately, we can't get the polyphenol levels measured in New Zealand. There's not a lab in New Zealand that will measure polyphenol levels in olive oil, which is very frustrating. And so to get polyphenol levels accurately measured in the olive oil, you've got to send the oil off to Athens, Greece. Peter says after each harvest, he sends a sample of oil to the World Olive Centre for Health, located in Athens. There, the non-profit tests the oil and certifies the oil if a health claim is present. I'm actually the only person in New Zealand, or Australia, who has sent olive oil to Athens to get it properly analysed. No one else in Australia or New Zealand has. What's interesting on this certificate of analysis here is they say that, how do I say it, they've been related with anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, cardioprotective and neuroprotective activity. Well, you've got good eyesight. <laughs> yeah, so um, what you just read consumes me. So my background is medicine, and so uh, one of the things of great interest to me is the health benefits of olive oil, which is why I'm trying to produce olive oil with the highest polyphenol content possible, because of the health benefits. And uh, in the last 15 years... Uh, there's one olive oil polyphenol in particular that's called oleocanthal, O-L-E-O-C-A-N-T-H-A-L. And oleocanthal has significant anti-inflammatory activity. 
In the world of medicine, that's pretty exciting because lots of diseases are related with chronic inflammation in the body. Everyone would think of arthritis, for example, but even coronary artery diseases to a significant extent a chronic inflammatory disease of the coronary arteries. And so uh, we have excellent medicines to counter inflammation in the body, anti-inflammatory drugs, but there's not one of them that doesn't have side effects. Whereas the polyphenol oleocanthal has significant anti-inflammatory activity with basically no side effects. It's now reached the point where the pharmaceutical industry has have the ability to capsulize. They can extract oleocanthal from olive oil and capsulize it into capsules. Is the benefit of, of incorporating olive oil into your food, whether it be by dressing or cooking or, you know, are we still able to ingest the benefits yes, that way? Yes, absolutely. Or is it better to just take a teaspoon or a tablespoon of it every day? Well, for, for the health benefits, of course, to take a tablespoon or two tablespoons, <laughs> it depends what the polyphenol level is in the olive oil. So if you're taking olive oil that has a polyphenol levels of 1,200 milligrams per liter, two tablespoons a day will give you health benefits. You know, not much olive oil in New Zealand has a polyphenol level above 500 milligrams per liter. And with all the rain this year, are you fearing that it will be lower than the 425 last year? Well, it depends what's going to happen in the next next half year, in the summer. So with this so-called El Nino, we're supposed to be getting less rain this coming summer. So if that pans out, then our polyphenol levels should go back up again. But interestingly, oil... If the polyphenol levels are, are quite high, oleocanthal, the one with the anti-inflammatory activity, if the polyphenol level is quite high, it will burn the back of your throat as you swallow it. You want to try? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it has a, a peppery characteristic to it. As long as you don't ruin my radio voice. Try <laughs> <laughs> not to. Try this. You're going to notice a peppery sensation in the back of your throat. 30 seconds after swallowing it. Okay. I can feel something happening. Is it burning the back of your throat a little bit? Yeah, Yeah. it's really bizarre, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's so delayed, you think. Yeah, it's delayed. Oh, that's so weird. So that pepperiness is from the oleocanthal. Yeah, so... Some At least you know you've got it in there then. Yeah, hey. great. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to send it to Athens. you just <laughs> got to try it. <laughs> yeah. Peter Crowlinston of Kuketi Olive Grove. Well, that's it for this week. Join us next time for more stories from the Country Life 2023 archive. From me, Duncan Smith, and the rest of the Country Life team, hey konna.